is I'm Richard Krauss, uh, sitting on my end of the electrocardiogram television computer unit. I don't know what it is, really. Uh, Chris Abel is on the other side. Uh, there's apparently something happening uh, at his uh, zombie den. There's a uh, caution tape everywhere. Yeah. I thought I'd break out the caution tape for today. Uh, yes. Zombie outbreak. Well, I guess the reason being, I mean, what we do on this for the next, you know, uh, 60 minutes or so is we're just going to talk about things. We're going to talk about things that grabbed our attention. And uh, frankly, I don't know whether it's just the dog days of summer or, or what, uh, but there's, I, I haven't felt like there's been a whole lot going on that, that really needed me to comment on it. James Gandolfini, terribly sad uh, that he died, 51 years old. Uh, you know, and I spent uh, a, a day or so talking about that on radio and television here uh, almost as soon as it happened. Uh, and telling the story, actually, I tell you, um, I saw James Gandolfini on Broadway. I saw him do a, a show called God of Carnage with Jeff Daniels and uh, Hope Davis and Marsha Gay Harden. And in the first half of the show, his character doesn't have much to do. He's very passive. He sits back. He's kind of a yes, dear, yes, dear, yes, dear kind of character. And I remember thinking to myself, I wonder why they would cast somebody like James Gandolfini, who, you know, had such uh, ferocity and, you know, could be absolutely positively feral by times on screen. I wondered to myself, why would they cast him in a, in a role like this? And then about the midway mark, Someone flicks a switch, and his character changes. He's had enough of the yes, dear, yes, dear stuff. And he has this long scene, or as I remember, kind of a long scene where he's just pacing back and forth, and uh, he's just getting everything off his chest. And he's pacing back and forth along the lip of the stage, and I swear that as he moved along the lip of the stage like this, the people in the first three rows that happened to be standing in front of him were pushed back in their seats by the, by the absolute power that this guy had when he was on stage. It was really something to see. And it was interesting because it was a night I was in New York and uh, I had, uh, ended up, I hadn't planned on being there. I'd ended up having to stay an extra day. And so I didn't have plans for that night. So I just went for a walk and I happened to be walking past the theater at about 10 to eight. And so I just poked my head in and said, Hey, I just want one seat. Do you have anything? And so I paid like 50 bucks and got a box seat. So I was sort of above the, I had this amazing seat very wow. close to the stage, sort of above it. But it gave me a bird's eye view of these people sort of being, you know, jostled back in their seats uh, by watching this guy. So that's my, my James Gandolfini story. He didn't do a lot of press. I never got the chance to meet him. Uh, but, of course, you know, Tony Soprano, one of the great characters of all time uh, on television. Uh, and uh, Gandolfini dying at just age 51, which is uh, far too young. Yeah, far, far, far too young, and especially at, a, at an age in which we're so much aware of those kinds of health issues, and there's lots of things to, to kind of address it. It just seems to be a shame. Uh, it's one thing if you're talking about 50 years ago when a man dies that early, but nowadays it's, it's, it sort of feels like it's something we should be able to prevent. So it's a, it's a big shame. Uh, good for him that he had as much of a career as he did very early on. You know, when you're not a leading man with the looks, it's hard to kind of showcase right. your skills, right? So, well, no. Yeah. And, well, you know, he, he really made a, a, a splash in the early 90s on Broadway uh, doing A Streetcar Named Desire opposite Alec Baldwin and then went on to perform in movies like uh, Get Shorty and, and True Romance. Yeah. The line that everybody remembers in True Romance is 
don't condescend me, man. The Brad Pitt line, well, it's him. It's James Gandolfini that he's saying that line to. Um, and so, you know, he did all those. And then, of course, Tony Soprano made him a superstar. And, you know, again, uh, in one of the one of television's great shows and, and one of the great performances of all time. Yeah, very sad. Sad that we won't have more uh, from him moving forward. Yeah. It's a shame. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's, it's hard because a lot of our big actors – uh, are like that. They they have very short careers, and then you know, due to health concerns, either they have to leave the business or they they die. And it's it's always a big you know. People still think of John Candy. People still think of of Chris Farley. It's just yeah. it's, you know, uh, and we know that they, these actors had a lot more potential that was unrealized. Yeah, yeah. Chris Farley would have been interesting to see what would have happened with Chris Farley. Uh, you know, I mean, because I do think that there was something really special about that guy that, that had never really even been fully uh, explored. I mean, he made loads of movies and well, maybe not loads, but he made, you know, a number of movies, but I think that, you know, he was just always cast as the funny fat guy in those. And I think there was more to him than that. And it would have been interesting to see, you know, had he gotten a chance to live another 10, well, you know, gotten a, lot, a chance to live until now, 10 years from, from then, uh, what it would, what what career path he might have taken? I mean, he may still just be making movies with Adam Sandler, or maybe he might have gone down a different route. Because I think there was a dramatic actor in there somewhere that just never got a chance to uh, to be a dramatic actor. All right. Uh, well, I wanted to talk about World War Z, mm -hmm. World War Z. I'm calling it World War Z because we don't say ZBs, Z, you know, zombies. I don't know. I don't know. And it, I don't know. World War Three sounds like World War Z sounds like World War Three. I don't know. That's what I'm calling it. Well, and I was I was prepared to talk about it just because it's the big zombie film of the the, the summer. We we should, but having seen it, um, I had kind of the same reaction as you did. You had your online uh, review. You gave it two and a half stars. Mm -hmm. You know, you felt it was just an okay film. I, I did. I mean, I think that there are a few moments in it that are really wonderful, um, that are, are uh, wonderful is maybe too strong a word, but it, that are exciting and that are, that are good and something that I hadn't seen before. I thought, without giving any spoilers away, uh, the scene on the airplane was nicely done. It was tense, you know. I mean, for what it was, I'm not sure that it was something completely new, but for what it was, it was well done. Uh, the scene with the zombie hordes crawling over the wall in Jerusalem, was, you know, suitably kind of epic in its scope uh, and, you know, something that I hadn't seen in a zombie movie before. But it was everything else kind of surrounding all that stuff that I just felt that didn't really cut it. And I, I, for any number of reasons, I mean, I don't think that the movie's really about anything. You know, the George right. Romero zombie movies were about consumerism or they were you know, uh, about uh, racial politics or the Vietnam War. I mean, if you looked for subtext, you could find it there. In this movie, though, uh, the only thing is maybe, you know, the idea that Jerusalem or that Israel builds a wall around itself and, and uh, that the zombies breach the wall and maybe the idea is that, you know, no country can be an island. No, you know, I mean, there's, there's probably likely a larger concept in there somewhere, but it's kind of hidden under this frenetic action that happens in the movie. And um, it, for me, didn't really work particularly well. I mean, I didn't really take away, I don't think, the things that I was supposed to take away from that movie, simply because 
there was, as I think it was Dorothy Parker said, there's no there there. There's right. just much there. Yeah, I had, I had very much the same reaction. To me, it felt like a theme park ride. Uh, right. As if Brad Pitt and his family were volunteers that had been selected of the audience to come up and star in the little, you know, adventure. And that all these tourists, uh, the, the, the tour guides, were standing around in their uniforms guiding uh, Brad Pitt as the father through this adventure. You know, he's there in his cut-off cargo pants. He's got his little bracelets. Uh, they, they give him this phony sort of, you know, uh, occupation. Well, he's a, a UN investigator. He's just an important guy. They never really say what he does for a living. He's just, you right. know, they have a lot of people in uniforms look at each other just like they do in those theme park rides and say, is he the man you were telling me about? Oh, you are our special guy, you know, and it's kind of like that where Brad doesn't really do much. He just has to kind of follow the, the, the various people from one module to the next and kind of, you know, do what's asked of him. He doesn't take any weapons. He doesn't take any equipment. All the guys who are, you know, his tour guides, they take care of the zombies for him. And, and everything that he's asked to kind of figure out, it's kind of like what an audience member would do anyway. You know, it's, it's that dad logic of, well, you know, is your toy broken? Give it to me. I'll, I'll try to figure it out. He doesn't right. really have any special skills or anything. Right. Well, I mean, there's the poster for World War Z uh, while we're talking about it. Yeah, I mean, I don't demand a lot. Okay, you know, from a character like that, uh, sometimes I'm okay with just having a tour guide through a story. But the story has to be interesting. And this story uh, didn't really work for me uh, for any number of reasons. I think, you know, for those who haven't seen it, and I'm not going to give uh, anything away, uh, just yet about it, and I'm just there. We go. <laughs> receiving phone calls during podcasting time, uh, but it, it's fair to say it doesn't give anything away that at the beginning of the movie we meet Brad Pitt and his family, and uh, he's retired. He's making pancakes for his adorable little kids. Uh, one of them has a, a doll that she likes, a little bunny doll that she she really likes. And uh, the pancakes are delicious. They seem to have this great little ha uh, this great little house house life going, home life going. And uh, one of the little girls says, "Daddy, we're so happy that you're home more often." And he's like, "Well, I don't do my extremely dangerous job anymore because uh, I've retired to spend more time with you." So we know this is what we know about his character. He makes good pancakes. He looks like Brad Pitt. He used to have a dangerous job. He no longer has it, and he seems like a pretty good dad. Then it's like, let's go to school. I'll drive to school. They get caught in a traffic jam, and all of a sudden, it's the damn zombie apocalypse. So the movie goes from zero to 60 very quickly. But what that means is that you don't really ever learn anything about these characters, and there's nothing really invested in it. Sure, he's a good dad, and the, the, the little girls are cute, and there's another little boy that they pick up along the way who is also a cute little boy. But we're not really given any real reason to care about them other than the fact that he's a dad trying to look out for his family and trying to save the world. But you don't really care one way or the other. It doesn't, there, there doesn't appear uh, um, that emotionally there's that much at stake. And, you know, I know that I could... I could have said, well, why not give us more of a prologue? You know, it, it, it's interesting. There's another movie coming out this weekend, and I can't review it yet, but I will tell you that the White House blows up in it. <laughs> <laughs> That's about all I can tell you about it, except that uh, they try and do the thing where they, they have about a half an hour of uh, the, the get-to-know-you segment at the beginning of the movie. 
uh, you know, where all the famous actors, as their characters, tell you about their lives, and we, we, we see them in situations that we're supposed to get to know and like about them. Um, and then all hell breaks loose at the White House, and it goes from there. Now, you would think, having said what I just said about World War Z, that I would have found that great, because you actually do get sort of emotionally involved in these characters, except that, again, you don't. It has to be well-known. They can't just be stereotypical characters like they are in this unnamed movie that I'm talking about. And that first half hour just seems to drag on for a very long time. And then what you have following it, though, is a pretty good action movie. Whereas in World War Z, they've gone exactly the opposite way. They don't give you any reason to be emotionally invested. And then the action is just kind of okay. It's not like a knockdown. If this had been a zombie bloodbath, wall-to-wall action, you know, crazy, show me things I've never seen before, maybe then I would have said, you know what, I don't really care if I know Brad's character inside or out or not, as long as he was doing something that entertained me. But this movie didn't, doesn't have that. No, I mean, they, they, they put him into some scenes that were kind of, carefully constructed monster scenes. They've established there's a monster, they're hiding in corridors, and, and you know, you do get a bit of a, uh, you know, an anxiety about the whole situation. Oh, no, what's going to happen? And they, they do a very good job in, in sort of creating those scenarios. But again, the, the, you know, there's no weight to any of the kind of scenes. Uh, Brad Pitt just coincidentally happens to always be the luckiest man alive. Right, like anywhere he goes, if there's three switches, he'll always throw the switch that's needed to open the door. It's 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 just. In fact, there's even one point in which he grabs an entire room full of vials, throws them all into a, uh, a container, and we're told that half the vials, if he chooses them, are, are bad. Yeah, one of the characters has already said, "Well, if he takes any of them, he'll die." Yeah, and so he just randomly chooses one, and it happens to be the one that he needs. I mean, it's there that consistently happens throughout the movie. There isn't really much of a stake at play because, again, it's as I said, it felt like being on a theme park ride where you know that the guy who's been selected from the audience and he's up on stage, nothing bad is ever going to happen to him. There may be monsters jumping out, but he'll be okay, and, of course, you're going to win at the end of the day. So it felt kind of... I don't know, it, it kind of felt phony. It was fun, like a theme park ride was, but you don't always go to a movie just for that kind of action. You want there to be a bit of a story, you want there to be a bit of a statement, uh, especially with the world of zombies, because that's always what made the culture so good. Well, and you want zombies. I mean, this is a PG-13 movie that seems to stray away. I mean, when the zombies turn into zombies, it's kind of cool, the thing, but they're fast zombies. And I don't think I like fast zombies, frankly. I've, 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 just, uh, I've, I've just come to, my, uh, to grips with that, that I prefer a slow, shambling zombie. But uh, there's a couple of, of, of uh, creepy moments. Uh, there's a zombie near the end. Uh, and I don't want to give anything away, but he's, he's, he's just looking at Brad Pitt through a locked door and chattering his teeth. That was pretty creepy. It was pretty good and pretty creepy. Uh, but by and large, the interaction with the zombies, is a lot of it's done off screen. A lot of it is uh, very quick. Uh, in the first hour, I don't know how you felt about the first hour, but the first hour to me felt so dark, just visually, not tonally, but visually so dark that I thought, okay, here you've got uh, a Brad Pitt movie, one of the biggest stars in the world a 3D movie and an action movie and you shoot it in such a way so that you can't really see the 3D, the action's not readily apparent and you don't get to see Brad Pitt's face quite clearly enough. I, I didn't understand the first hour uh, of the movie just in terms of that. And then, you know, uh, the original ending was a big, you know, complete 
uh, and utter action, like typical action ending. They've changed that. I didn't mind the ending. Uh, part of it happens in Nova Scotia. These are my people. I'm from Nova Scotia. We don't take no zombie crap down there. So I didn't mind it. I mean, it was a choice. It was an artistic choice. Didn't you know? Didn't didn't really work for me. But I was at least relieved that it wasn't the same that I might have expected from just any big budget action film. They they seem to try and shake it up a little bit. Instead of getting bigger and bigger and bigger, it seemed to get smaller and smaller and smaller. And, uh, you know, that's okay. It's a choice, an artistic choice. Whether you like it or not, it's sort of up to you. It's up to your own feelings about it. But for me, I, uh, I got to tell you, it, it just didn't quite hold together enough. I wanted more, and yet I wanted less. I wanted more story. I wanted more characters. And yet, I, I could have done without him uh, jumping around all over the world. And it, just tell me, tell me a, a better story in fewer places, and it might have been a better movie. Yeah, and it—I mean, I had issues in that it never—it didn't seem to be consistent in a horror movie. Once you have established your rules about what you know, how the the, the monsters are, and how you defeat them, that right. should remain relatively consistent. And I felt like. They kind of changed the zombies based on what they kind of needed for the sequence or the scene. Right. You know, the zombies towards the end of the movie are far more spooky and scary looking than the ones at the beginning. Right. Uh, and yet only about, what, three days had passed by, so I'm not really sure what the, the, the development in terms of the monsters were. And then just the, the method, methodology or the thinking pattern in terms of what Brad Pitt was trying to do as he tries to uncover the origin of this whole uh, thing, tries to find a, a solution to it all. He's supposed to be a detective. They, they talk about clues, but none of those clues really add up or mean anything. Like, yeah. if you try to follow it, it just seemed nonsensical. It was like they were just sort of attaching a lot of things that sounded good to the ear, but didn't make any sense to the, to the brain. Right. And then I felt the most egregious thing towards the end was the whole Pepsi product placement thing that they just sort of popped in there. I mean, it was just... It, it is quite something. It is quite something. But I don't think, and I, I would have to see this again, so this isn't gospel, but I don't even think he drinks a Pepsi. I think he drinks the one thing that isn't a Pepsi in that whole thing, uh, and it's a plot point, so I'm not going to give away what happens. But you see a lot of cans of Pepsi in Correct. a Pepsi machine, and yet he seems to pick the only thing that isn't uh, that doesn't begin with P to drink. Yeah, I, I mean, I watched it very carefully because I could see what had happened. I mean, I, I actually got up and looked around the theater just to see what the reaction of other people were because it really did felt like at the hype key moment of the movie, they just pressed pause. Yeah. And, you know, now Brad Pitt just... Our sponsor. Exactly. <laughs> just like that. I mean, he's, he's walking to, to, to Triumph and it's like, oh, look, there's a vending machine. And, yeah. you know, somehow has coins to put in there. Uh, despite he's been traveling around the world and money doesn't mean anything anymore, and, you know, boom, boom, grabs a can that if it's not a Pepsi can, it looks astonishing like a Pepsi can. He's just turned it in his hand so you can't really see it, but the whole machine is full of Pepsi. Uh, when the, the camera pans, it's like every button on the vending machine says Pepsi on it. Uh, somehow he manages to open the Pepsi machine and then spills lots of Pepsi cans on the floor. But the amazing thing was that they take the moment for him to actually pick up the can, you hear the tsh, yeah. and he just sits yeah. there and drinks. Like, we're all just, well, no, that's refreshing. Yeah, you know? <laughs> so totally. And I mean, it's at the height of the, the whole climax of, of how the movie is going to end. So, in terms of marketing language, 
Pepsi saves the day. It's you know it's it's almost like Popeye eating a can of spinach before he goes off and and sort of you know defeats the bad guys. Brad Pitt was having a Pepsi, and it just I couldn't believe it. I thought you know here you got a movie. It's a big blockbuster. They've got uh, you know 190 million dollars they've sunk into it. Do you really have to kind of go to that length with product placement to get money? It's not a low budget film that needs the extra cash. It just it seemed really, really out of place. Well, it struck me that it's the only product placement in the thing, unless, unless you know, Belarus Airlines or whatever that is, that other plane is, is, is chipping in some money too. I don't know. I mean, I, 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 it's a really glaringly weird scene uh, in a movie that isn't filled with glaringly weird scenes. It's filled with, you know, kind of okay, uh, but that is a glaringly weird out of place moment in that movie. Yeah, most of the time product placement, and I understand its purpose usually. But well, it's product placement. There'd be no James Bond movies currently, right? The the James Bond movies, um, big wax of their uh, their their budget comes from product placement. So you know, uh, every time you know he has a Heineken now, you know Heineken's paying for that, and and you know he likes certain kinds of vodka all of a sudden you know and that's sort of thing. but it's paying for those movies and it is a little apparent for sure uh, but not kind of as egregious as this one seems the Pepsi seems in this one yeah I mean and Brad almost turns to the camera with it in his hand and kind of smiles like there's a whole knowing he's breaking that that fourth wall yeah. it's pretty crazy uh, for me I'm, I'm, I'm because I'm, I'm a product guy I'm always working with products I'm a little hyper uh, aware of that kind of stuff. And the, the last time I saw a movie that did it to that extent was Black Book, which was all about a girl chasing all the contacts on her phone. Right. And there was actually a scene in the movie where she and another girl are sitting in a cafe, and she says, you know, my, my phone has crashed. What do I do? Oh, well, you just take your phone, and you flip it over, and there's a little reset button. And I watched them do a whole tech segment for like five minutes that was all just on how the phone works and how you do all the various different things on it. And I, it, just, it just blew me away that this had been placed into the movie. The whole movie was about, I think it was Palm at the time right. that, that did that film. But, yeah, that was pretty, pretty nasty. Well, I'm looking to see if I can find a picture of Brad with his Pepsis uh, on screen here, and I, I, I can't. But, I mean, I think for me, uh, the most egregious product placement recently uh, was in a film called The Internship with Vince Vaughn and Owen Wilson. And that movie is essentially a two-hour-long ad for Google. And, you know, it's about <laughs> these, these two guys who are... Uh, salesmen and they sell blenders and watches and stuff like that and they're old school hardcore hard sell salesmen and their jobs evaporate because people start shopping online and you know they're, what they do uh, technology has easily replaced eBay and sites like that have put them out of business so they're trolling around trying to find jobs they can't find any jobs until uh, they hear about Google and how you can become an intern at Google and then possibly from there then you'll get chosen to, to have a job. Uh, they think, well, this sounds great. Move across the country to California to get these intern jobs, except that they're twice as old as everybody there. They don't know anything about computers and blah, blah, yada, 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 yada. And characters actually say things like, well, I believe the work that we do here at Google is changing the world and that kind of stuff. And, <laughs> It is just egregious. I mean, everywhere you look in this movie, the Google logo is somewhere. Uh... That's nasty. I don't know how anyone who's involved in the film can feel comfortable with that. Yeah. I mean, 
I mean, it is. Uh, let me just it's show you. It's one thing when it's in an Adam Sandler film. Yeah. Uh, it's another thing when you know it's it's actors who will be in interviews and try to present themselves as people who are conscientious in terms of what they do. Brad Pitt, especially. I mean, there's a yeah. guy who, you know, tries to yeah. stand against all sorts of you know corporate abuse, and there he is. Yes. There, there's Vince Vaughn and uh, and Owen Wilson uh, walking in front of the Google building. Uh, this is. Uh, the pair of them uh, talking to the Google people with the Google uh, logo on the yes, screen. Which, as you can see, we're using that same technology right now. And so, where's the Google logo? Oh wait, yeah. it's not there. No, and you know, I, I mean, it's just it, it's it's so egregious. I mean, and people stayed away. I mean, people understand a certain amount of product placement, and you know, people will accept a certain amount of product placement as long as it feels somewhat organic. And it's not such a sore thumb. In World War Z, it's a sore thumb. In in uh, in the internship, I, I don't even know what to call it. It's it's a, it's a it's a it's a rancid arm. It's not a sore thumb anymore. It, it's something more than that, you know. It's just everywhere. It's, it's it is really truly truly ridiculous in that movie. Well, I wanted to talk a little bit about World War Z, um, the book, because. Yes. You and I hadn't read it, uh, which seems really nasty for two guys doing uh, podcasts about zombies. But again, it's you know there's always a long list of stuff that you need to kind of sit down and read or play a game or listen to music, and it just will go on and on and on forever. Uh, and I thought, well, on this one, I better make sure that I at least check out the book. And I, I had such an odd reaction from the movie that I felt like, you know, for the book's reputation, for everything that I've heard about it, uh, this doesn't sit right with me. There must be some major changes between the two. So this weekend, I didn't have the, the time to sit down and read the entire book. Uh, I found out there is an excellent audio version uh, containing an all-star cast right. with um, John Turturro, uh, Martin Scorsese, Simon Pegg, Henry Rollins, Mark Hamill, uh, Christine Crosby, Carl Reiner, Rob Reiner, piles of people all getting together to reenact the book on audio. And it is... Fantastic. I, I cannot recommend it enough. But that way I thought, well, that way I'll, I'll get to kind of get through the book before we have our, our, our conversation. So right away I can tell you that from the beginning it just didn't make any sense. This was a completely different story. This is not what I just saw in the movies. And as I began to listen to the book, and I think it takes about 15 hours, I began to play a game with myself to see if I could find anything in the book <laughs> that was in the movie. Right. And having finished it, I can estimate there's about 2% yeah. of the movie and the book that actually line up. Everything else is completely different. Right. I've, I've heard this about it. Now, I haven't read it, uh, as I say, um, but it's, it's, it's reportage. It is uh, episodic, the book, right? It's a, it's a reporter going from, you know, zombie-infected area to zombie-infected area and reporting on it, right? Well, so while the movie starts at the beginning of a zombie infection, right. the book is 10 years after the uh, infection. The world has managed to find stability. Uh, it's now peaceful. The whole battle is over. Um, in the movie, it's about Brad Pitt and his family, and Brad Pitt is the, I don't know, very serious, important UN guy. Right. In the book, Max is just a, a journalist, an interviewer working with the UN, and he goes around the world to interview people about what happened to give them recollections and stories and so it's it's a collection of I would say 60 to 61 short stories that are kind of like Twilight Zone or Rod Serling style stories uh, each one 
talks about how they handled the situation in their country. And so you get a variety of different perspectives. What's interesting, though, is that the movie is about fast-moving zombies, uh, zombie people that, that transform instantly, you know, within about 12 seconds, and yeah. have superpowers, and, and you know, almost like an like organization, and build these pyramids. You've seen the trailers. In the book, it's George Romero's zombies. Right. Slow, uh, uncoordinated. Uh -huh. um, the way the infection spreads is that you have to get bitten first, and then it takes a while, and then you get sick, you develop a fever until you eventually lapse into a coma, and then you die, and then you come back. And so that's, you know, it's a completely different sort of um, approach to it. And the, the advantage being with Slow Zombies, his book is, is the exact argument you want to hand anybody and say this is why Slow Zombies are, are the best, why they rule. It's because it, it creates that time for human beings to start to be human beings. Right. To turn on each other, to be exploitive, to be you know egotistical, to you know for bureaucracies to do all the nasty things that bureaucracies do in governments and militaries and all that. And so that's what his book is like. It's kind of like Joseph Heller's Catch Twenty Two, right. and it's very acerbic. It's very critical. It takes a look at the way that people kind of jump on each other. Uh, it's brilliant in terms of how he can take a look at an entire world, hence the title World War Z, which makes right. sense in the book, does not make any sense in the movie. Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, it's a catchy title, but that's, you know... That's yeah. Like... So he's taken George Romero's little movie, which is a bunch of people in a house, and he's scaled it up so it's a bunch of countries on a planet. And how they're all sort of fighting each other. What's brilliant is that he looks at it from so many different aspects. So one entire short story is just a guy whose job it was to train dogs to kind of deal with zombies, to kind of hunt them and, and track them down. Another chapter deals with a Chinese submarine commander who took his entire crew and just disappeared into the ocean uh, and then eventually surfaced to try to figure out what happened to the planet and was amazed at, at what he saw. Just the, the number of people who had fled to the oceans was fantastic. He has an entire chapter that's devoted to a black market guy who uh, deals in human organs and how the virus had spread insidiously through that particular market and system. Right. Uh, so it's just amazing. He deals with, he, he has one chapter just devoted to a guy whose job is to go deep down into the oceans in a special suit to help repair fuel lines and the fact that he finds zombies deep down in there. Right. Um, there's a chapter devoted to the International Space Station and the experience that the, the few astronauts up there watching all this and not being able to do anything about it. So it's it's a fantastic book. There's none of it in the movie. They 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 licensed the, the book. They took the title and just made up their own movie. It, it it's just crazy. Well, I mean, this and this is not uncommon uh, to be honest. This happens. Uh, but you know, one of those things that people say, and this is kind of a legendary quote that's been has been uh, attributed to everyone from you know uh, Stephen King to uh, Raymond Chandler. Uh, and, you know, it goes something like someone says to an author, how do you feel about Hollywood ruining your books? And the author says, well, my books aren't ruined. They're right here in the bookshelf. The books are fine. The movie, not maybe not so much, but the bookshelf is <laughs> fine. And so, I mean, I, I have less of an issue with, with them uh, mm -hmm. taking this and turning it into something else um, than I do with them having taken a cool title and made kind of a so-so PG-13 you know, kind of, it, it, I mean, it's fine. The movie is fine. 
it's okay. And I mean, I say this with making my weird little dismissive faces. You know, I, I, it, it, it's just okay. And, I, and it should have been so much more. And for me, that means it's a missed opportunity. And that means that, you know, for whatever this thing costs, and we may never really know how much money this movie costs, but it, it's a substantial amount of money. Uh, you know, I, I look uh, to uh, other movies that are coming out that I've already seen that are coming out later on this summer, and again, that I've agreed not to talk about until they come out. But let's just say, for instance, that there's a movie coming out that has giant sea monsters wrestling with huge robots, for instance, and there's a movie that must have also cost a whack of money, taken a long time to make, and it is so entertaining from start to finish, and there is some subtext in it. Not a lot, but there is some subtext in it. And there are characters that you look forward to seeing again when they come on screen. And uh, it'll make you laugh. It'll make you sit on the edge of your seat. And it's a lot of fun. It is a great summer movie. Whereas World War Z feels like a disappointment. Yeah. There, there's um, So what the, the movie has from the book are two things. It's got the title, yeah. World War Z, and then there's one brief passage of dialogue, uh, which in my screening was the one that got the most attention, the most positive attention, which was the, this, the discussion of the tenth man. Yeah, 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 yeah. And this idea that in Jerusalem um, that they had developed a system where if nine analysts all get together and have the same positive, optimistic conclusion, then the tenth man as a point of has, principle... Has to go against them. Yeah, has to go against them and has to be the pessimist, has to be the devil's advocate and pretend that the worst case scenario could happen, as yeah. silly as it might be. That phrase got such a huge reaction in my theater and that's the only part uh, that came from the book. There were two other attempts to try to deliver that same kind of dialogue in the movie. There's a whole discussion about Mother Nature being a serial killer that makes no sense. Right. I, I can't figure out what they were talking about. Mother Nature does I not... I didn't get it at the time, but I thought I'm just not smart enough to get it or something. I, uh... Yeah, no, there's, it's, it's, you know, I don't know. It's almost like um, a fortune cookie thing. You know, it, it sounds like it means something, but it actually doesn't mean anything. <laughs> I was trying to process it in my head, and I'm going, this doesn't make sense no matter how you look at it. And then the other piece was about um, uh, North Korea apparently pulling teeth. Which yeah, like also, in 24 hours, pulled every every single the tooth of every single person in uh, North Korea, so that if they bite you, you can't get infected. Which must have made every dentist laugh, because I don't know, you know, dentists know it, it. It's a huge traumatic thing to pull a tooth out of somebody's head. You you just can't pull them all out and do the whole thing in 24 hours. That's not from the book, not at all. Uh, Max Brooks is a much smarter, well-researched person. He would never uh, include that kind of stuff. The well, book. He also takes all this very seriously. Yes. He wrote a, a, a you know, I mean, he's Mel Brooks's son, and, and he wrote a, a book that was labeled under the humor section, you know, uh, uh, How to Survive a Zombie Plague. But when he gives speeches about this, he takes this very seriously. Yeah, I would say that the difference between the, the two properties is World War Z, the movie, is a fantasy yeah. So it's about um, escapism, wish fulfillment, how we would love to see this thing turn out if it's your dad starring in the role. Yeah. Uh, and then World War Z, the, the novel, is speculative fiction. Yeah. Yeah. So he's taking a look at it. Let's pretend that this is real. In fact, a lot of the, the format of the book is based on recollections of World War II. So he's taking, and it's interesting because he's taking all the knowledge and information we have about World War II and then saying, okay, let's change the enemy and turn them into zombies, and how does that affect the outcome? And it's drastic because zombies are very, very different. 
from anything else in history in the sense that most of our weapons, like they have an entire section where they, they talk about this, where the military is, is arrogant enough to say, we've got all this fantastic you know, weaponry, we just roll it out and we'll just decimate these, these zombies. And then they realize that uh, things like grenades are meant to um, deliver shockwaves. It's not about actual damage, it's about the shockwave of the force going through your body which works on living tissue but not you know undead tissue that most battle plans are drawn about taking out the leaders of an army but there are no leaders so it was just that kind of thing and just the the extent that he would explore it and take it to is just phenomenal you end up going wow this is really interesting um, so yeah the the good news is there's a fantastic if you saw the movie you didn't like it there's a fantastic book waiting for you to discover and if you're not someone that you feel like going through 60 soliloquies or monologues which is what they are and it can kind of be a little tiresome there is an equally fantastic audiobook version out there with Simon Pegg Martin Scorsese pretty much steals the book as a scumbag corporation uh, this executive who in the early days because it takes a year for the United States actually for it to reach the United States and then that year they have CNN doing uh, pundits talking about whether or not the zombies are coming is it liberal is it a, a conservative plot point that kind of thing and in that time you have this scumbag corporate guy played by Martin Scorsese who does an amazing job deciding to market a rabies drug just to make as much money off of people as he can it's Fantastic. Well, and Scorsese too has he talks really fast and he's got a really distinctive way about him. So that yeah, that would be fun. Yeah. He might not have been an obvious choice for an audiobook reader because he does speak so quickly, but again, it sounds perfect. Yeah, he uh, he just occupies that reptilian skin yeah. really well. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's fantastic. And Henry Rollins playing a, a, a mercenary for hire. Uh, really really well done and Denise Crosby has this fantastic sequence where she's a pilot that gets downed and how she has to crawl across the land and survive against the zombies and the way she talks about herself about this being this small diminutive southern lady bell who has to kind of take on the zombies it's fantastic I found it just riveting so for me what they should have done was choose chosen five of those stories and made that into a movie yeah yeah it's interesting that they wouldn't have done that but maybe that was an early draft I know this script uh, passed through a lot of different hands uh, while it was being written. Uh, you know, the, it, most famously, the entire ending was changed. But I have a feeling along the way, uh, lots and lots of tweaking happened. And when that happens, you know, well, that, and yeah. and even the ending is that's not in the book. Yeah. Uh, in terms of what direction they kind of go in the book, if, if you're thinking that there's some sort of vile or there's some sort of nothing, nothing like that whatsoever. It's right. it's. It's quite funny. Well, uh, there's a couple of other uh, things that we wanted to touch on here. This is just something uh, that we missed the show last week. So typically we would have uh, uh, talked about this last week, but um, because of uh, my schedule, I wasn't able to make it. Do you see the photo I've just put up? This oh, is from yeah. the V&A, the David Bowie exhibit at the V&A, the Victoria and Albert Museum in London. And uh, it's coming to Toronto. It's coming to the AGO in Toronto on September 25th. I don't have a great deal to say about this other than I'm extraordinarily excited. And um, I bought this magazine on the weekend uh, as a, as a warm-up. Look at that photo on the cover. It's so cool. And um, uh, I think the, this outfit is actually in the, uh, in the uh, display that will be coming to Toronto. But if you're around, 
pick it up. I just scanned the cover while we were talking there and threw it on. But this was sort of a look back at Bowie's career with lots of great photos and that sort of thing. This will be the warm up uh, if you need one. You know, read that, listen to the new record, and you'll be ready to uh, to go to the AGO and see the Bowie exhibit. Yeah, which it's, I, my understanding, I've seen video of it, yeah. and it is exceptional. Uh, yeah. it, it's it's not the usual, um, hey, we've got a bunch of memorabilia, and there's a yeah. little tour that goes through it. They've gone through his archives, and they've brought out stuff you've never, ever, ever seen before. And then just the way that it's all presented as this kind of, Multimedia tour as you go through it all it just sounds fantastic. And and it's the biggest selling show in the VNA's history. Uh, and you know I'm sure that they could probably run it for another year if they want. But instead they've decided to take it on tour. Toronto being the first stop. So it comes here in September. I cannot wait to see it, and I cannot wait to go to the gift shop afterwards because I know that they're going to have cool stuff. Oh yeah, yeah. No, and again stuff that you won't be able to get anywhere else so yeah well and they reached out I mean it's not just um, that it's you know a bunch of museum staff arranging things but they actually reached out to a number of people to write essays based on I don't know Camille Paglia is right. uh, one of the people who wrote extensively about it so it'd be very interesting well the NME the New Musical Express in, in England who are the people that put this magazine together this is all you know reviews and, and uh, interviews and things that have run in their pages uh, over the last 45 years or so with David Bowie, uh, did a, uh, uh, like a, a look back at the um, last century. So in like 2001, uh, and they, they polled 100 musicians and said, who do you think the most influential musician of the last 100 years was? And it was David Bowie. <laughs> Well, and I'll, I'll say this about the exhibit because um, I watched an interview with a bunch of people who were talking about it, and one woman said something that I thought was very interesting, which was that uh, she was about my age, and she said that um, it's odd that for her, uh, when she was in those teenage years, uh, it just it seemed like she had missed the, 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 the important part of David Bowie's career, so that it wasn't just a, it wasn't a part that you could sort of engage or connect to anymore. So she never really got or understand um, the, the extent of what David Bowie is like, and I felt the same way. So when she went to the exhibit, it really was a mind blower. Uh, and so I'm saying that because if you are a big Bowie fan and you don't want to end up going alone, feel confident to push, pressure, or shove anyone you know to go and see it. Because even if you're not a David Bowie fan, it is going to be very rewarding. It's the kind of thing that you know you don't you can go in, not knowing anything about this man, and just be really blown away. Yeah, I mean, I think that you know people will look back and and think, oh well, I wasn't there for Ziggy Stardust or the the Berlin trilogy. You know, those are the most sort of important years. But I think this magazine makes it clear, and uh, uh, the exhibit makes it clear that he has been a vital artist and continues. Uh, to stay a vital artist uh, all the way up through to, you know, his his second to last album, which was ten years ago, which everyone thought was going to be the last one. And even if you've if you've laid ears on uh, the new album, I mean, man, what you have here is an artist, and we've talked about this a little bit on the show, a, a, an artist who takes everything that happened before him, throws it in the blender, and then looks forward. And, and creates this record that is uh, just, to me, is a staggering piece of work from someone who I never thought I'd hear a new note of music from again. Now, do you have any hope that he may be around? Because I've heard from a few people, like, oh, I hope David Bowie comes to the AGO. 
I doubt it. I doubt that he will. I mean, people have hope, you know, because uh, Patty Smith showed up when the AGO did a, a, a some of a, a display for photographs and things. Bowie's a different situation. I, I I don't know that he's in great health. I mean, I think that you know he he doesn't. He's he had a heart attack on stage a number of years ago, and since then he's just sort of really disappeared. So I don't know. I mean, I I. Uh, I would have not thought that there'd be another record, though. So, uh, is the more they deny that he will be not touring or that he will not come here, the more it makes me think. Well, they're just telling us what they want to tell us, so it'll be more of a surprise. I don't know. I would love it if he came, but I'm not counting on it. No, no. So Paula Dean found herself in some trouble, and you know, here's someone who uh, I have uh, always found hyper annoying. Um, I know that uh, people in the South uh, speak like that, but she seems to me like a caricature of uh, what people think the South is like rather than what it is actually like. Uh, her food, uh, while I'm sure it's probably delicious, uh, every bite of it has enough sodium to keep you, uh, you know, to, to hit your sodium levels for the next, you know, week. Uh, ditto butter, ditto cholesterol, you know, all that stuff. Um, and, and I've just never, I've never been a fan. And of course, when I read what happened to her, you know, she, she's being sued, uh, by an ex-employee and she gave a, a deposition in which she admitted to using some very unsavory language and having some very, very, uh, bad, uh, thoughts. <laughs> uh, and, 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 uh, and it has torpedoed her in a way that it happened so quickly. She has been a staple on the Food Network in the U.S. Uh, for about 12 years. Yeah. And uh, they have fired her. Her contract was due to come up. It's June 24th. Her contract only had another week on it anyway. But they said, listen, we're not renewing it. Uh, for the first time in over a decade. Uh, QVC, which is the American Home Shopping Network, uh, we call it here in Canada, uh, they are seriously, they're having a very, very serious look at their relationship with her. Um, and I'm sure that just scratches the, the tip of the iceberg. I mean, I'm sure that she has uh, uh, deals with loads of people that she probably works for as spokesperson and all that stuff. And all those will, I'm sure, in coming weeks be up for review. And, uh, you know, having said all that, that I'm not a big fan, and uh, there has been an outpouring of support for her online, on social media. Uh, I, it's not going to be enough to to change the Food Network's mind. It might sway QVC. They haven't, QVC haven't made any hard decision yet. Um, they're about to. They say they were reviewing all the facts, which basically means that they're weighing what the blowback would be if they let her go. Yeah, they're looking at uh, their demographics and going, would our audience actually care about this? But the thing is, the thing is, I mean, you know, listen, a, a few thousand people on social media can make a lot of noise and make it make it seem like, you know, there's a whole lot more racket out there, a whole lot more support than there might actually be. You know, you can you can rally uh, 25 or 30 people to stand outside a restaurant and, and create a lineup so it looks like there's a lot of support. All these things, I mean, I'm sure that there are people out there that are supporting her. Um, but 
I, I'm not exactly sure how I feel about all this because the things that she said are reprehensible and beyond reprehensible. Uh, it, it, we're talking uh, specifically about her use of the N-word, and uh, she had some ideas for a wedding that involved having African-American waiters dressed up like slaves and things. I mean, it's just, uh, it, it, it boggles the imagination that in 2013, you know, that these ideas would be out there. But here's the thing. It wasn't 2013. That's when she did the deposition. Uh, everything that she said dates back to, like, 1986. Mm -hmm. And so, now, in 1986, uh, you know, listen, uh, it, it there is no excuse for this language at all. I want to be very clear about that, and I'm not making excuses for her. But it was a long time ago, and maybe things change. And in the deposition, it didn't seem, maybe things I mean by that, maybe her attitude has changed. In the deposition, it didn't really seem like it had, and I don't want to, uh, you know, say, well, you know, Paula Dean's a racist, maybe she is, maybe she isn't. I don't really know. I've not met her. But in the deposition, she seemed kind of like, well, if you tell a joke, I don't know who's going to be offended, you know, that kind of thing, which did not help her at all. But I don't know. I, I, I think that people have made, we live in such an era of outrage where people have to be fired immediately. You've, you've made a mistake, so you have to lose your job and your career has to be torpedoed and stuff. And, and I'm just not sure. The, the, the two or three videos that she made uh, making apologies <laughs> were, I mean, uh, the people that need to be fired are her PR people. Yeah, for oh yeah. To be uh, seen online by other human beings. But I'm not sure. I mean, I'm not terribly unhappy that I will never have to, probably never have to see her on television again. That doesn't make, I like the Food Network. I watch the Food Network. It doesn't make me unhappy that I'm not going to see her on television. But I'm not sure uh, that this was exactly the way to do it. I mean, she can be contrite. She can take some counseling. She can do, there's loads of things you could do. I don't know that everyone needs to be fired when they make a mistake, even though it's an egregious, terrible mistake like this one. Yeah, and I, you know, maybe the Food Network is is looking at it very coldly, objectively, and sort of deciding, you know, we can no longer pay her. She's no longer going to be worth financially what she she was. Well, before. And, and maybe you know, listen, her contract was up in a week anyway. Maybe it wouldn't have been renewed anyway. Maybe her numbers are down. Maybe anything, you know, anything could be possible, right? But but uh, uh, they they've certainly you know, they reacted very quickly. Within 24 hours, I think, she was gone from the food network, which is fun. Well, I'm amazed in, in sort of reading about all this because I was aware of her for a while uh, just because her, her recipes seemed to be in, inedible. You know, like it was just ridiculous. And yeah. I had always thought that she was a television personality who may have at one point in time started off as an expert, became really popular, and made that transition to being an entertainer. Right. Meaning that people tuned in, she had high ratings and numbers, but really wasn't somebody that people took seriously. You know, there's, people have often wondered, does anyone cook these recipes and actually eats them? Uh, but she is worth a net of $17 million. Yeah. has an entire empire of about 25 restaurants across the United States that people actually go in and eat. And it, yes, it is her recipes and people do... Uh, make this stuff and, and eat it, and it's just shocking to me that <laughs> that it's it's that successful of a of a business for her. It's not just about her being uh, an outrageous character that people like to kind of tune into or subscribe to, much like some of the talk radio hosts down in the U.S. But that she actually is someone who sells books and sells DVDs and wow. food, and people actually eat her food. It's just shocking to me. 
Yeah, I'm just looking up here, uh, trying to find the Twitter had a, a feed <laughs> where uh, it was uh, people suggesting new recipes that she could try. Yeah, <laughs> which were uh, some of them were quite funny. I mean. You know, maybe mean spirited, but uh, but funny. Paula Dean has been dropped by Smithfield, a major pork company. Uh, they, they, yeah, a line of hams that she has endorsed and gone. I mean, Saturday Night Live has already uh, done a, a, a take on her. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, I just don't see her coming back from this. And no. I, you know, I'm just having a quick look. Uh, down here to see what else has happened because it seems to be happening by the minute stuff is happening for her and I mean there as I say there has been an outpouring of support online uh, for her people writing the Food Network and their Facebook page on Twitter and that kind of thing but you know 5,000 people can generate a lot of tweets that, but they don't necessarily generate a whole lot of uh, viewing audience you know they don't they don't represent much of a viewing audience so I don't know what's going to happen here yeah, well, I mean, for me, I guess my issue is that, um, for me, I would have liked to have seen her eliminated a long time ago for, for things that I think are tangible, tangibly uh, irresponsible. So, you know, the, the not just the food that she does, but the fact that she kept her diabetic condition a secret. Yeah, that's really egregious, too. Yeah, yeah. considering the, the food that she's, she's pushing, the fact that she kept it a secret and only revealed it when she had a million dollar endorsement offer from a diabetic drug company. I mean, it's just, you know, I'm talking about the scumbag that Martin Scorsese played in, in World uh, Head, and, you know, it's, it's, I think a little bit of her Southern charm prevents you from sort of equating her to, you know, a male character like Martin Scorsese played, but I think some of the, the, the crime there is just as bad, just as egregious. I would have liked to have seen her sort of dropped because of that. It seems weird that they've chosen this as the issue to drop her from, uh, in which it seems to be something that's, you know, it's more about words. I mean, yes, what she did was really bad, using the N-word in the context of planning a plantation-style wedding. Yeah. Good gosh! But yeah. as you've pointed out, I mean, there are, there are lots of people who have been tweeting. Um, Anne Rice, author Anne Rice, tweeted a link to an Oprah segment in which Paula Dean was brought on to, you know, do something for a... a uh, multicultural family and didn't have any problem with the fact that you know she was dealing with people who weren't southern who weren't yeah. white so it's it's yeah it's an odd kind of you know thing to drop her for but I guess it's one of those things it's just it's such a sensitive issue yeah, this is a, a parody magazine called dying with Paula Dean uh, blood sugar spiking summer desserts yeah goes on um, yeah I mean listen I, it, it is Race in the United States, I mean, race everywhere is is an issue, but in the United States, it is the it is the issue, I think, uh, and or certainly in the top two of issues, and and uh, you know when when uh, it rears its ugly head in terms of things like this, it's pretty hard to dial it back from here. And you know, it's interesting that two weeks ago, Paula Dean was the lovable Southern grandmother, you know, who was uh, making food. Yeah, a little few black marks here and there with the uh, you know diabetes scam and that. But uh, you know, she was someone who could you know could probably command twenty thousand dollars to make a speech here and there at, at, at food conventions and that kind of stuff. And now everything has changed, and it happened very quickly. I mean, it it it, it really does. Uh, uh, you display how you really have to be in public life 
you have to be, you know, very careful and 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 smart mm-hmm. to well, to maintain a career. She's sort of part of that trend that we've been seeing with a lot of people in the public eye who are considered to be genuine right. or authentic, meaning that a lot of their outrageous behavior is is considered to be charming and forgiving, yeah. representative of sort of a folk culture that sometimes isn't represented in the mainstream. Yeah. But And that may be the issue. Maybe it was the fact that she was often seen as being sweet, southern, uh, that, you know, the... the mistakes that she always made was kind of adorable and now it just sort of crossed the line and you no longer can see her as that that sweet human being anymore yeah yeah there's no coming back from this i don't think although who knows stranger things have happened you know uh uh, tiger woods is getting endorsement deals again and that's what they looked like you know for a while there it's like he had forgotten how to play golf and 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 he was getting dropped by everybody and now he seems you know everything seems to be fine with him again so uh, who knows? Who knows what, what It's amazing what? in the very litigious uh, culture of the United States that someone hasn't tried to sue her for health issues. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, it's unclear to me. I mean, maybe people have. Who knows? I, I, I'm not sure about that, but it wouldn't. I mean, people have sued McDonald's. People have, uh, you know, saying, listen, I ate a Big Mac every day of my life for 10 years, and now I'm fat, and I've got high blood pressure, and I, my, my heart feels like it's going to explode, and it's your fault. Well, it's one thing when, I mean, there's so much ink that's been spilled about how unhealthy and hazardous her recipes are that you could build up a case just based on that, saying, look, look, you know, society has sort of said as much. And all this is happening the same time the American Medical Association has defined obesity as now being a disease, you know? Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I was just on a show uh, earlier this morning. I shot a show, uh, and there was a barbecue segment on it. The food was pretty decadent. It was delicious, but it was, uh, you know, I had to have a defibrillator come and, and you know, uh, get me revved up to do the back end of the show after eating some of this stuff. And I was talking to the, to the chef that was preparing it all. He says, well, of course you don't eat like this every day. You don't eat like this every week. This is just, this is a special, this is a special uh, thing that I'm doing here. You would never eat this every day. Paula Deen's, you know, food, the idea is that it's everyday food, it's comfort food, it's food that you can eat all the time. And, you know, it's clearly just not good for you. It's all like, and just put another pat of butter in there with the cream cheese, you know. Well, she yeah. puts the whole stick in. I mean, you know, like she takes it to a ridiculous extreme where she's, you know, shoving things into donuts and it's just, you know. I'm just going to see if I can find a picture of Paula Deen to leave us with. Ah, you've been typing again. It's it's triggered your microphone. Oh no! Oh, you're back. I'm back. Uh, here we go. This is a picture I was looking for. Hang on here. Uh, <laughs> I wanted to show you. I wanted to show you this picture here. Hang on. This is uh, Paula Deen riding a stick of butter. <laughs> <laughs> over some very fluffy-looking mashed potatoes. <laughs> and that's taken from a, a, an event where she apparently was riding a man. Oh, was it really? Yeah, oh, that was one of her first scandals. She's had many, many scandals. It's it's quite, I don't know. So maybe part of all this is just that, you know, people have, it's the straw that broke the camel's back. All these sponsors and networks are going, look, you know, this is just, getting too far too much okay here are some of her recipes uh the sausage pancake egg sandwich 
Um, there's, let's see here. Oh, yes, there's the ladies' brunch burger. So it's a burger, but you replace the bread with two glazed donuts. Uh, the brown sugar bacon. So, you know, bacon, clearly delicious. You dredge the slices of bacon into brown sugar before you, uh, you cook them. I mean, man, this goes on and on and on. The ultimate fantasy deep-fried cheesecake. So um, let me just click on that. I want to see if there's a picture. Yeah, it says uh, it, it says that uh, you should uh, check yourself into the nearest hospital as soon as you uh, as soon as you uh, eat this. Yeah, it's uh, it is um, chocolate, powdered sugar, uh, chocolate sauce, whipped cream, and cheesecake. Wow. And you yeah, and then you, and all deep fried. Yeah. Usually those kinds of recipes are done as a lark. You know, like a restaurant will have a normal menu and then there's that one novelty item just so yeah. that people will come and, and talk about your restaurant. Or you go to a state fair and they have that, again, for the same reason. But it, she presents it as being, you know, stuff you could eat every day, day in and day out. Yeah, yeah, too bad. Well, I don't feel like we're going to be troubled with her uh, very much from here on in. I mean, I don't know that she'll disappear completely, but no. her son will still have a show. Uh, and I believe his show is called something like Not My Mama's Kitchen or something like that. And he prepares lighter versions of, of uh, you know, Southern classics and things. But um, I don't feel we'll be seeing her anytime soon. Well, whatever she is doing, she's filling some kind of a need, a major need down in the Southern U.S. And you can bet that somebody else will, will step into her shoes. They may not do such outlandish recipes but they may speak to that southern culture in a way that is you know they'll hopefully learn from her example and kind of introduce a little bit of moderation but crazy it is crazy well uh i think that's it does that wrap it up for uh oh yeah most certainly i think that's that's been a good episode i want to thank everybody for tuning in the only the last thing I'll leave you with is a story that I just saw, and I'm just going to read the headline here. Man has 140 pound testicles removed, considers selling them on eBay. And with that, I bid you, bye bye. <laughs> <laughs>